You're listening to Design Talk, a podcast for conversations connecting design with theory, organizations, business, and impact. Hi, I'm Sindhu. Hi, I'm Anugre. We're very pleased to have Karma Garvi with us today. Karma's career spans factory automation, control systems, system architecture, software prototyping, and information modeling. Folks, lovely to meet you. Um, I'm XUCD 1992, so quite a while back, and I studied engineering. I co-founded a company, and I might give you a link later. It was for prototyping control systems. I, I was curious to hear the the um, conversation about agile versus waterfall earlier because whereas software is very meaningful to agile, building a house, for example, isn't. You always do the foundations, then you do the rocks, then you do the windows, and finally do the roof, and so on. And um, but what we wanted to do with health software. Was allow people writing software, which is extremely expensive, to make a mockup in one percent of the time it took to actually program anything. I have been working more and more in the information modeling space with um, external foundations, Bioform Foundation for the Life Science, and they're attempting to come up with a a, a unified information model that represents uh, their equipment on the factory floor, such that they can bring in and they can plug and play different vendors, and they will all work. I think it's quite close to what you folks are studying, and then I'm more recently my role is with um, Russia and Switzerland, and I'm basically doing, as I said to Alan, what I what I call the uh, information plumbing. So I'm not going to say data analytics because it's my job to get all of the disparate data and all the crazy different formats. I mean, we're still we're still talking different fine format from XML to CSV. Produced by these different machines, we're having to retrieve that data, and it could be just lying in a folder somewhere, or it could be via an endpoint. We're having to transform that data, and we're having to post that data to a central repository in, in an aligned fashion, such that finally, um, folks such as yourselves can actually access this data and then get something useful out of it. So that's where I'm at right now. Well, thank you for introducing us to your world. uh you've described yourself as working at the plumbing end of the data analytics can you explain what that means i think you just briefly touched upon it can you explain it in de- a little detail thank you sure how i see the role of the data analyst which i am not one by the way is 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 morphing in front of my very eyes and comes like rough brush and one third of the, what they do is business analysis figuring out uh, how, how is the system supposed to work internally what systems must communicate with others One third, another one third of their work is getting those systems to communicate, understanding how they communicate. So that's where I come in. The, the plumbing, if you like, is: Are we using a messaging system such as MuleSoft? Are we? Uh, how are we retrieving data from the system? Um, is it proprietary file format? Do we have to uh, develop a, a dedicated API using their own software development kit for a particular piece of software? And Who are the publishers of the data, and who are the subscribers to that data? Where does it start in its journey, and where does it end? And it is my job as the data plumber to basically uh, to deal with the business and to say, okay, this, in life, this in the in the life science industry, we we start with a test, so we have a sample, and we want to run fifty tests, so it starts there, and then the information. Has to come from a myriad of different systems, and it has to be transformed in a particular format and retrieved back in in order to finally give results to the patient. So when I talk about plumbing, I talk about everything from hardware, or it's all virtual service now. IP addresses, firewalls, all the basic network engineering stuff, uh, and messaging systems such as MuleSoft, and um, transformations of data, 
using the likes of data weave um usage of various languages proprietary scripting but also things like javascript to get data in formats such as json xml csv which are plain dot text or even pdfs and uh, using external libraries to parse for example a pdf to receive the useful data out of it and post it to the end could be data lake or it could be a just a results database so so the stuff that i do is the basic day-to-day -day stuff to enable a factory to get stuff out the door. It's not the what if, um, let's let's run a couple of routines here in Python and see if we can somehow uh, make a link between what's happening in this factory and this factory and perhaps compare them. So I, I stopped just short of that. Well, so Cormac, who uses the data and what do they use it for? Yeah. Um, so that one of the first things we do when we sit down is we figure out, well, who's consuming this data? Who needs it and, and who wants it? So if, if I talk you to a basic example in life science, which is what I'm most familiar at the moment, we have a test. So we're making stuff out in the factory and we need to, need to confirm the quality of that before the, the drug can get released. So we will take a sample uh, from the factory, send it to the lab, and that sample will be associated, the lab scientist, will uh, will associate a sample ID with that, a parent ID. But there might be 500 tests associated with that sample. Not only the easy things like pH and temperature, but also very complex systems like chromatography to tell you the actual, um, uh, what is in that sample, what are the components, and it gets very, very detailed and we're into gigabytes of data by the second or third test. So the scientist will actually run the tests to create that data. But the data then will be returned to the initiating system and it will be reviewed by a quality group within a, a factory or manufacturing facility. And so the consumers of the data, ultimately, a report will be given to a quality group and they will determine whether or not the drug is fit to be released or whether or not a manufacturer should be halted or, or changed in any way. So, by the way, that's a, in the life science industry. That's a, it's a regulated industry, so this is all stipulated by law that you must do this. Having worked with and mastered a wide range of software tools over your career, what go-to approaches are in your consulting toolbox? Yeah, we rarely we rarely have a, a blue sky uh, approach because we are always integrating to uh, legacy systems. But but that said, the first thing we do is we try and sketch out the system architecture and relatively speaking that's the easy bit what servers ip addresses endpoints what goes where next up is the data architecture what data in in what format carrying what information using what data semantics goes from where to where and then we move like i, I use swim lanes for example for for almost everything we have a fantastic tool the likes of camunda uh, for developing swim lines we use uh, lucid.io it's, it's an online visio if you like so we start there now, next up, and, and something that I've noticed, not every factory does this. So from, because of my background, the first thing I want to do is a, is a vertical slice of all the technologies. Because it's only by doing that mock-up, if you like, conference, conference room pilot is another word. It's only by doing that, by getting into the weeds, do you really know what issues are going to happen. And that does lend itself to the agile approach. Because if you say, well, by the end of this month, I want a, a mock-up, a prototype of a uh, how we're going to interface system X, Y, and Z, then you have so much more information on which to base your design spec going forward. So that's a, that's really, that's the key. And after that, of course, then there are conventional approaches within the industry. In life science, for example, there's what's called GMP, 
good all native manufacturing practice, but it's a waterfall approach to you know, you do your requirements spec, you do design spec, and so on. Can you give us a sketch of your approach to requirements capture? I like to create a prototype and put it in front of the customer. In my case, the customer will be a lab scientist that is interfacing to a system. They're doing tests. Uh, perhaps it's chromatography, incredibly complex test. They need to, need to be able to potentially, for example, get that sample I talked about. If you can imagine a test tube, there's a barcode on it. You've got to be able to scan that. And then the associated data, I have to have a routine in the background that goes off to database to fill in the metadata associated with that sample. And it has to be easy for the lab scientists to execute their tests. Now, once I've got the prototype up and running, I invite the customers, if you like, in to say, look, this is how we're thinking the system should work. You ask us to interface with this system, this is what it looks like. And the first thing they will do is, oh, that's that's not how we want it to work at all. And that is totally fine because the last thing you want is to present your end client with a fait accompli to prevent your end client. Here, we've got all the system up and running now. It's perfect. No, it isn't. So the earlier you, and, and this is common sense for, for Agile, but the earlier you engage your customer, the better, because just get anything in front of them and get let them basically start to take ownership of how they want it to look. Within reason, of course, because you've got your own guidelines and you have your own deadlines to meet. So what you do is you, you get them in front of it, the prototype, you take the feedback, you come back for another second bite at the cherry. But at that point, you have to decipher what they've said into absolutely essential functionality versus nice to have. Um, so once we have the essential stuff, then and we get something up and running, let's call it minimal viable product version 1.0. Then at that point, we can have a, an ongoing process whereby they ask for additional functionality. But the important thing is to get their buy-in early for a version 1.0 of the product. I know it's not all you ask for, but it's enough to add value. That's the key bit. As long as you've developed something that is better than what they had before, then they're engaged and you're adding value. And then you can talk about the additional stuff later and later. So think prototypes. That's how I do it. How do you approach conceptual design, both as an individual consultant and as a member of a team? Yeah, I mean, again, it's, it would bring me back to um, the prototype, but there's no there's no doubt in, in these, when you're part of a team in a huge um, company, for example, life science where I am now, um, you have to acknowledge that you're never going to be the expert in the room in, in almost any field. So when I'm, I, I feel like I'm a jack of all trades in that I've experienced all these systems over the years, but right now at this point, there's another team from Yieldsoft. There's another team for system X and system Y. There's another team for the Windows servers. So in terms of having to engage with them, I mean, the, uh, normally it comes down to the SOPs that your actual, that your, that your company has already. And then there might be a, an already an up, an, up and, um, an up and running method for, for example, requesting servers. So, and then once you request a server, you might want to request an endpoint or authentication. So, you have to learn the existing business processes for the standard operating procedures. And once you have that done, and then you have to recognize who are the experts for the particular fields and who has the ownership, then you engage them. And of course, as, as anyone will tell you, if, um, if, if they're not responding fast enough, what you have to do is in your weekly meetings, you basically bring it up in the meeting. So, and try and get them to commit to doing something. So that's straight up project management of uh, tasks. 
How would you translate a conceptual design into a full project? Yeah, again, sticking with the idea of uh, getting the prototype in front of the end customers as soon as possible, you would, of course, iterate that as much as you possibly can to improve the quality of the design. And at some stage, it should be good enough to commit to paper. I mean, in, in a waterfall type environment to commit to what's called a design specification. So these days, the design specification, and some people use the term user stories and they use the agile and method of, of requirements capture. But if I just stick with the, the old school waterfall one for a second, you might have a design specification and it, it, you have to map one to one or you have to map to the requirement specification where your design specification meets the needs of the customer. So here's what's called, I know this is a horrible word, but a requirements traceability matrix, which shows you, oh, you asked for this and we supplied that and, that, and this is how it meets its requirements. So you have to capture all of that and document it. Ultimately, we're talking about Microsoft Word here, and you might be able to copy and paste some previous jobs, unless you're designing spaceships or stuff. But I mean, normally in evolutionary engineering, you're designing something that's been designed before, you're just tweaking it slightly. So you might be able to borrow from existing designs also. That's where experience comes in. What for you is the essence of design? If you have a problem, and uh, if there's a problem that you can find and you are lucky enough to find that people can't solve and will give you money to solve, that's the one. Um, I think I remember hearing uh, the, the, the founder of Dyson saying years ago, he used to go looking for big, hairy problems. And what he meant by that was really difficult to um, solve problems. That means there's a lot of effort required and a lot of resources required, unfortunately. So if you're a startup, you know, you won't have those resources, but you might have more flexibility or maybe you can get funding. But um, you have to find a problem. And I mean, I know Einstein is often quoted as having said that, uh, you know, you spent, if you have an hour to solve something, you spend 59 minutes on defining the problem and one minute on the solution. Absolutely, you front load definition of the problem, looking at it from different angles. And then at some stage, you have to commit and say, this is the definition of a problem. You've done your root cause analysis and so on. But once you once you have the nail down, then you, at some stage, you have to move forward. And Agile is good for, you can have a minimal viable product. You have, a, you have your version one of the design. See if that worked. If that failed, you're back again for another go. So yeah, spend as much time as you have defining that problem. But there, there is a there is an 80-20 rule as well. You, you can spend all your life looking at the problem and solve nothing. So at some stage, you have to get off the fence and you expose yourself to uh, making a mess of it. But that's that's just life, right? So if you can, at a, some point, you have to stop saying, okay, I think we have it well enough to find and you just have to get into the bite then to, to fix it. Do we have any questions from the audience for Cormac? Uh, hi, Cormac. Uh, my name is Suman. Um, you spoke about the minimum viable product and how if it adds additional value, you know, that's that's something that's great. So I wanted to ask you, how do you assess value? Yeah. Um, if So a big project has come along and you're part of the team rolling out a new software system and no one wants it because they've been using the old software system for the last five years and they know how it works. But of course, the business doesn't want it anymore because it doesn't meet the business needs. For example, it doesn't meet the data analytics needs. So now you, you've got a big group of people that are you know, not very happy about the new software installation, but nevertheless, they've been told to buy into it. 
you need to consider them as your customers and engage them as early as possible. In terms of the minimum viable product, you, if at all possible, if you can find something that your new system will do better than the old system, that will save them time or effort, that is certainly a win. Um, but at the very least, what you can't do is implement a new system, which is basically worse than the old one. That's <laughs> you just have to stay away from that. So during the requirements capture with, with the stakeholders, these are the end users, you have to figure out, mm, we have to at least do this. This is how the old system worked. Now there are a better way to do that. But we we have to we have to improve it such that they're going to buy into the new system. And where the MVP one comes in, you mightn't be able to say to them on like on the first uh, release, you're not going to be able to get everything to work. So you might say, look, we've got fifty percent of functionality covered now, and it works better than the old one. But for that other fifty percent, it's still missing, and it's going to have to come in new releases. So so that's that's kind of how the conversations go. I mean. If at all possible, you get the stakeholder buy-in, you try and design the system so that they've got some wins in there, and then you, you set it up such that on an evolving project basis, you can continue to add their functionality that they're continuing to, to request, and then, then eventually everything's happy. Thank you. Um, hi, my name is Manali. Um, so initially you were mentioning how you were involved in the data collection process and we were actually talking about that in class as well. Uh, I just want to understand in a practical sense, you said you collect data from different sources, there's a lot of transformation and everything involved. How is the validation of the data um, done? like in the real world. We know that in, we've always mentioned that, okay, data needs to be validated, but how is that validation done? How do you know which data is relevant to you, which one's not? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, so validation has a very specific uh, meaning within, for example, the life science industry. But let me let, let me say to you, uh, I'm measuring the temperature in the tank. Now, how do I know if that temperature is correct or not? Well, before that data is released, you have to do what's called validated testing. Now, I know the interpretation of the word here might be slightly different, but I have to prove with documentation that what I'm displaying on a screen is, uh, first of all, is from that correct instrument, and second, that that instrument is correctly calibrated against a known uh, standard. So, so in that case, certainly in manufacturing, you have to calibrate every single instrument that you're recording, and you have to prove that the calibrators and ultimately those standards are traced all the way back to national standards in Ireland, just like any other country. So that is uh, that is one way you validate the data you're showing. By the way, part of that validation process is showing that on here on my independent device, the temperature is four degrees, and on the screen, the temperature is four degrees, so it passes. So there's there's no deviation. Now, uh, moving on from that, the transformation data, what happens? It's a, it's a very good question because it comes up a lot. The, for example, the FDA, when, when, let's say we've, we're manufacturing drugs. Um, the FDA don't want people transforming data all the time. So if I have a report of a chromatography that showing, shows the components of a particular drug, uh, I need to be able to prove that that data hasn't been doctored. So obviously there's a uh, Sarbanes-Oxley and all of those uh, things that were done for the financial industry, whereby basically your average IT operator or engineer does not have access to the database. So that's the first thing. There's security of the data. So for example, I wouldn't be able to, I would not be able to modify the data in any way, shape or form in, in the secure database. So that would be the first thing. Uh, and then 
there would of course be chain of custody so the authentication who's logged in where obviously that security takes a large part of the, the process there but when we've got when we're actually transforming the data where is the final destination of the data and where is the destination of the data that will be used to create the report to give to the regulator and that is that is the most important one because in data analytics in particular that's a, what we call a non-regulated space. So you might have a regulated database that no one can touch except the regulator on the factory floor, but uh, no one can touch that. But that data is actually duplicated and sent to the cloud to some data analytics platform, like Jupyter, for example, running in Azure. So that is non-validated. That basically means that data can never really be trusted for anything to do with quality. It's, it's not anonymized or anything, but it's data that can be used just for research purposes. You couldn't release a batch because of it. The uh, the actual validated data, once it's gone through in life science industry, once it's gone through a process of proving that the values are what we say they are, and that's used in calibration, then in the transformation, it's something very similar. So if you think about unit testing of a piece of software, you have a class, and uh, and, and in fact, this I think this even goes for AI because we've been looking at how would we prove that uh, if we asked AI to transform the results from format X to format Y, uh, that it did it correctly. So we would have to do it ourselves manually. We would have to have the uh, results. And then we would have to, in this case, I'm talking about AI, but it could be something else. We would have to prove that the other transformation gave the exact same results. So you have to have a set of results to compare against. Hey, Cormac, Alan here. You've talked a lot about data. Could you just give us a little sketch of the types of data you're likely to encounter in an industrial setting? Sure. Let's, uh, let's think about a brewery and we're, so we're making beer, something close to my heart. And uh, one of the things we have, we'll have a big reactor and we have to control the temperature and, and the pH, conductivity and so on, for, for basically for the yeast to work correctly. That, uh, there will be continuous data generated there because we wish to monitor the temperature Every second, for example, although in general, how the systems work for continuous data is they just monitor. And as soon as there's a deviation uh, beyond a set percent, they will record the value. So the continuous data in that, in that scenario will be the speed of the agitator, speed of the pump, temperature of the, uh, of the mash ton, uh, temperature of, of the liquid and uh, pH and so on. And they would be continuously measured. And they can be stored to a, not a SQL database, to a different type of database. In fact, I've seen it called table storage in Azure. But basically, it, think of a table with a single timestamp and 250 columns. So the idea is it's a much easier to write to that type of storage because there's so much continuous data. And we're not really interested in relating it not at this early stage to other data. So it's a different different type of data. It's time series data. You have a timestamp with the data and uh, you can you can go back in time. Now, at a later stage, we also have event-driven data. So when did we start manufacture? When did we stop manufacture? Um, when did the pump come on? When did the valve come on? When did the valve go off? When did someone enable control, temperature control, for example? These are all events, and they can be stored in, in a SQL-type database. And generally, they are, because it makes, obviously, if you store in a SQL database, it's much easier to write a report for it. So now we have batch data in the SQL database, and we have continuous data in another one. So at that point, we have to do a, a form of union, if you like, uh, to retrieve 
using the timestamps from the batch data saying start and stop, we can retrieve all of the data uh, searching on time from the continuous data. But there's one other for, uh, one other format of data that's becoming more and more popular in the factory floor and it is, it's basically object-oriented data. These are much more complex structures. And uh, I'm involved with the, um, the OPC Foundation. There is a, we have a, an information modeling standard called OPC UA, and then each and each uh, industry, if you like, tries to develop their own their own information model for their industry. But the this type of data is very it's very deep structured data, and typically it's exported using propriety drivers. I, I'm thinking specifically of uh, life science again, whereby you might be measuring the metabolism of uh, cells the bioreactor, or what's called viable cell density. So you just measure the capacitance in, in the bioreactor. It's complex data. And once it's retrieved, it's stored in an object-oriented fashion. So a lot of a lot of different forms of data now these days. Yeah, it's interesting that the event data is literally a whole series of timestamps associated with devices or sensors, whereas the other data, the batch data, is um, what a scalar or a temperature that varies, you know, huge ranges. So the the, the, the data types themselves. Anyway, I'm I'm waffling on here. I've got another well, well, question. That's, that's good, and you just reminded me, like um, the S88 standard. We talk about the physical model, so that temperature of the time that is physical data. But of course, uh, over time, you are you're manufacturing something, and that's called a process model, and that involves starting and stopping of equipment, adding ingredients, mixing up the recipe, putting it in an oven or whatever. That this that is the process model. So that's the temporal or sequence of events across time. So absolutely, it's it's not a it's representative of actions like I started the agitator. It's not representative of the actual speed of it. So absolutely, Alan. Yeah. Hi, my name is Kathy. Um, I worked in finance analytics before, and I want to transfer, um, like extend my domain knowledge to manufacturing and logistics. So I just want to ask you, based on your experience in manufacturing, like analytics system, uh, what is the special point about analytic system implementation in manufacturing? I, like, what is a key metrics that a manufacturing plans would want to know when they implement such system. So for example, like in my previous workplace, like when I did um, uh, analytics for a stock trading system, uh, like data delay is a big point to talk about. So, and I guess that maybe manufacturing, that would be data precision. So yeah, those kind of metrics. So. Yeah, the uh, so data delay is not an issue in manufacturing. It's real time or near real time. You, the, the closer you are to the actual physical plant, the faster the computer has to work. So PLCs are the fastest. Um, but so, something related to what, what you said there, one thing the factory manager wants to know is, hey, how much of my plant is making me money right now? How much of my plant is actually uh, is broken down? is in fault because it hasn't been correctly maintained. So the simplest way to explain that is every single device, let's think of it as a unit, every single major unit of device in the factory floor has what's called an overall equipment effectiveness state. The states could be in fault, could be idle, could be in production, could be in cleaning. 
once it's in production, I mean, everyone's happy. That's you get a feel for um, the utilization of your plant. So if every piece of equipment is being utilized in production at any one point in time, you've got a hundred percent efficiency of the plant. And that doesn't exist because there is always bottlenecks. There, while one piece of equipment is in production, the next piece of equipment down the line might be idle. Now, the reason why that's useful data analytics-wise is the plant manager can see that we seem to have a bottleneck in the plant here because um, this bit is constantly in production and this bit down here is idle and it's costing us money because it's not, it's not making anything. So equipment effectiveness is the number one, and there are standards for that already. So the status of all the equipment at a moment in time is, is definitely one, one of them. Uh, hi, Cormac. Um, Nandu here. So I just wanted to ask you a question like, uh, do you get very eccentric projects? And if so, how do you do feasibility study on those projects? I wish I wish I got eccentric projects because that will be closer to blue sky. Yeah, unfortunately, in the world I live, it's pretty conventional engineering. Um, the one blue sky project I personally done was my startup and not enough people bought it. So blue sky projects like... I've heard of guys getting uh, jobs for satellite firms and they might spend 15 years developing a new satellite and it never gets launched. So <laughs> there's uh, there's that too. Um, I, I, I do note that, and I think this will, this will be reasonable advice. Um, when I was working for the satellite factory, so I worked for a lot of American firms, but the real engineering for the American firms is done in the US. It's only the manufacturing that's done in Ireland. When you are the closer you are to central department, the more likely you are to get interesting projects or first-time projects. Right now, I'm I'm in head office for major pharmaceutical firm. We get all of the new stuff. We get all of the let's try this, see if it works, and see if it satisfies the business needs. So we get the new projects because we're in the central office. So if I could say one thing, it would be how you get. On the more interesting projects is you get to the central office if at all possible because the satellite offices or satellite manufacturing that's the more boring work that's the those systems will have been rolled out by the central team and it's really just a matter of implementation at that point and it's very it can be very difficult to feed back to the central the central team you know that oh, i think you should improve your system like this because because they'll say well, you said that, but the other 15 sites haven't said that, so we don't see the need. So get, get to the um, head head office if you can in terms of IT projects, and then, then you'll get, get interesting stuff. Could I just chip in there on, um, we've talked a lot about manufacturing, but I think the technologies that you deal with day to day translate also into other industry sectors too, um, like power generation, remote power generation, oil field, refinery, I could put shipping in there, I'm sure, and other kind of uh, dis globally distributed infrastructure. Now, you, you mentioned getting back to the center. Increasingly, the center is able to monitor all of that remotely through dashboards that they've generated. Could you t talk a little about the architecture of that? Sure. Um, as, as Alan pointed out, program with logic control, there's the Houston, every single industry there is. So whereas I talked about life science, I've worked in, in oil and gas, semiconductor, so the likes of Intel, uh, breweries, dairies, they all use the exact same equipment. Now, in terms of, if you think, if you think about a wastewater treatment company for a second or a water treatment company, 
they have geographical assets across an entire country. They could be hundreds and hundreds of miles. Uh, it used to be that there would be a, a little telephone modem on each one of those sites and they would have to ring up a central server and post their data in. That was 30 years ago. Now, they more than likely have wireless 4G internet. And though typically how it works is no one, and this is a very important point, like no one wants their manufacturing plant live on the internet and open up to, to cyber attacks. There's been a couple of high profile ones over the last few years, especially against energy infrastructure. So um, the networks are generally firewalled off from the internet. So you will have what's called a gateway or edge device if I go with the waste water, with the water treatment uh, plant example, whereby you might have a water treatment plant every hundred miles, um, it will have a, an edge gateway. So there will be a totally uh, firewalled off local control network. And then if it needs to, to post data to a central server, it will go via an edge gateway. That edge gateway will have the correct certificates on VPN, authorization, authentication to connect via the internet to some um, target server and then the data can be uploaded so the the plc controllers themselves typically i like to keep them doing what they're good at which is controlling the high speed uh, equipment but they they can also on a secondary server or with standard windows server you will have a driver that can retrieve data from these programmable logic controllers and then potentially via demilitarized zone or firewall, it can send the data via VPN to, to a data cloud or data gateway somewhere. But all these systems use the same technology. So on the factory floor or at the electricity line or uh, controlling the wind power turbine, we have what's called a PLC. Then we more than likely have some form of SCADA server, supervised control and data acquisition server. And they're more and more starting to look like web servers. And uh, basically, they, they just show you in near real time the status of, for example, the wind turbine or your water plant. And then separate to that again, you would have to have a database server to store all the data we talked about earlier, which is the continuous data or the event-driven data. And then we would probably, not for not for the wind, uh, wind example, but in life science or in the brewery, you would have what's called a batch server. So this is the instructions of how to start up the batch, what ingredients must be added, um, how to continue and how to end the batch, and then uh, how to clean up all the equipment. So that, that would be the batch server. So there's quite a few different types of servers, but all of these, in my experience, they, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, they were mostly Unix. And then in oil and gas, they remained Unix a bit later. They were running on HP platforms for quite a while. And now they're basically all on uh, Windows servers, with sometimes with the exception of the Oracle databases, which will might run on Linux platform. So the database server, the batch server, the SCADA server, and the PLCs, these are common across all industries. Is that, is that what you were, you were talking about, Alan? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And then you could take it the next level, I suppose, head office has um, some, well, I suppose through the main firewall access to all of those sort of plants across the world in sort of aggregated uh, information views. So there's what's called a manufacturing execution system. And let's say your supply chain, to keep it simple, is just two factories and you control both of them. Well, I mean, the order for one of your customers will start in factory X. It'll be half finished there and then it'll have to be pushed over to factory Y. The system that controls that is now what we call an above site system. It's not on 
uh, factory X, it's not a factory Y, it's above site, it's in a centralized data center somewhere, and it's called a manufacturing execution system. Similarly, in the if you're a life science, or it, um, you will have what's called a lab execution system. So you might have to do run a particular type of test, and uh, and someone's sick, someone's sick, or your lab's just gone on fire in in one one area. What you can do is reroute that work to another working lab with the with the staff with the correct qualifications that can do that test. So this is uh, the ability to reroute work in near real time to different. Uh, nodes if you like in your network and that's these above side systems in that case it's a lab execution system they manage the workflow and, and of course the workflow is based on a, a standard normally called isa s95 is worth looking at it's the management of the work and the materials and the resources in your plant and above site across your entire enterprise you've covered a lot of material there and it, it's really fantastic to dip into it and i think really valuable for this group and for this class to, to listen to the terminology, to the, uh, the realities of working with data in these different environments. So I'm going to hand back over to the hosts. Well, we'll wrap up there. Thank you so much for your sh sharing your ideas with us today, Cormac. Thank you, Cormac. Take care. Thank you for listening. The music used is Voltaic Fluctuations by Ben Prunty and used with his permission.